this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Daniel Moran. I'm thrilled to be here today with F. Brett Cox, author of Roger Zelazny, published in 2021 by the University of Illinois Press as part of their Modern Masters of Science Fiction series. Welcome, Brett. Well, hi. Thanks so much for uh, asking me to do this. I'm looking forward to it. So am I. Great. So thanks for coming on the show. And before we dive into your book, which I'm very eager to do because it was a terrific, terrific read, I'd like to know, can you just tell the listeners a little about yourself? Um, sure. Um, I am a uh, – my, my official title these days is Dana Professor of English at Norwich University, uh, which is in Northfield, Vermont. Um, I'm a transplanted Southerner. I was born and raised in North Carolina and uh, have been at Norwich for about 20 years now. And I, uh, of course, wrote the book on uh, Zelazny. I also write fiction, and my I had a short story collection called The End of All Our Exploring Stories. Um, you, you know, guess, uh, spot the English teacher who's writing um his writing fiction. And uh, that was published in 2018 by Fairwood Press. And I also, uh, a number of years before that, co-edited with um, Andy Duncan an anthology called Crossroads Tales of the Southern Literary Fantastic. And that was published by Tor Books in 2004. And I live in Vermont with my wife, Jeannie Beckwith, who is a uh, retired uh faculty at Norwich and uh, still very active as a uh, playwright and director. So she's, um, and I occasionally get pressed into theater service, but that's, that's another topic. That's a, I'm sure it's a labor of love. So this is a terrific book of yours about the life and works of a writer whose works I've always enjoyed. Obviously you have, but, but whose, whose works may not be as known as those of some of the, the, the quote unquote heavy hitters like Frank Herbert or Isaac Asimov or Ray Bradbury, you know, the usual suspects. So can you begin today by telling our listeners about Roger Zelazny's career, some of the highlights, some of his most well-known works? Sure. Uh, well, Zelazny is, well, obviously, I think he's a very interesting figure because I wrote the book uh, on him. But uh, Zelazny, um, when I it was an American science fiction writer of the late 20th century, and he was very closely associated with what was called the New Wave movement in science fiction in the 1960s, um, he, uh, his direct peers would be people, well, the, probably the closest connection would be Samuel R. Delaney, who uh, was a, a direct peer of, of um, Zelazny's and to this day remains probably the staunchest advocate we have for Zelazny's work. Um, you know, so uh, Samuel R. Delaney, Harlan Ellison, uh, Norman Spinrad and all the British writers like uh, J.G. Ballard and uh, Brian Oldis. But uh, what was interesting about Zelazny is that he had a very um, strong sort of general literary background. He had a master's degree in comparative literature from Columbia. And he was uh, a, uh, an almost frighteningly well-read individual and just really knew the canon of world literature 
uh, as well as anybody, but he equally well knew the traditions of genre science fiction and fantasy that he read as a kid and grew up loving. And he was even active in, um, you know, science fiction fandom for a while in the uh, 1950s. He wanted to be a poet. In fact, I don't, I shouldn't say he wanted to be a poet. He was a poet. He published a lot of poetry in his lifetime. Uh, and in the uh, late 50s, early 60s, he was concentrating on writing poetry. He submitted a book manuscript to the Yale Younger Poets Prize, I believe that was. And he did didn't win, and that sort of sent him back uh, to writing fiction. And he published his first story in 19, uh, his first um, uh, science fiction story in 1962, and was very much in literary terms an overnight success. Uh, he published a lot of stories very quickly, and then in 1963, he published a um, uh, novelette, which the term novelette is kind of left over from pulp uh, tables of contents, just to, a, a long, a longer short story uh, called A Rose for Ecclesiastes that um, was a finalist for the Hugo Award. And from 19, and then he just really had this remarkable explosion of publications. And in the, uh, by the time he was in his early 30s, which was at the end of the 1960s. Um, and I'm referring to um, uh, some notes here. He had uh, won the, the two main awards in science fiction at that time, and still are really two of the main awards of the Hugo Award uh, given by the World Science Fiction Convention and the Nebula Award given by the science, what was then the Science Fiction Writers of America is now the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Association. And he won the Hugo twice and the Nebula twice and was nominated a bunch of times, just had this extraordinary impact on the field. And then his career took a, some, some would argue, a somewhat different turn and uh, beginning really with the publication of the first book in the Amber series, Nine Princes in Amber, uh, he, well, he became a full-time writer. Uh, he was working for the Social Security Administration in Baltimore. He's a native of the Cleveland. He was born and raised in Euclid, Ohio. He's a Cleveland kid. And he uh, got this job at Social Security in um uh, Baltimore, and then he quit to become a full-time writer when things started going well, and he spent the rest of his career as a full-time writer. And a lot of the discussion about Zelazny and his career is this sort of muse, musing, regretfulness, arguing about the degree to which the commercial imperatives of being a full-time writer sent him in a different direction with his writing. And there was historically a school of thought that his great work was all of that stuff in the 60s and that nothing he did after that quite measured up. And that's something I try to interrogate in the book. Although uh, I've seen a couple of reviews have come out that have suggested maybe I didn't interrogate it as much as I thought I did, but um, but you know the um, uh, but that was there. And of course, one of the things I try to say in my book is that he made very conscious decisions about his career, and he did do a lot of work that was more perhaps uh, you know had a strong commercial intent, but he was always interested in doing innovative things and throughout the 70s and 80s and into the early 90s there where he he never stopped doing work that was ambitious was innovative but it just was in the context of doing a lot of other things too that were more straightforward and more commercially oriented and of course the the sad fact is that he died Young, he uh, died in, um, uh, I guess maybe in some ways I've always kind of blocked out the uh, exact year. He he um, he he died in uh, in June nineteen ninety five, 
and he was only 58, and he died of um, colorectal cancer. And it was just a real shock to the field. And in terms of how Pislasny is positioned with some of these other writers I've mentioned, the fact is that people like Samuel R. Delaney, certainly like J.G. Ballard, and, um, and of course, otherwise like Ursula Le Guin, like Joanna Russ, like Harlan Ellison, um, became known outside of the field in various ways and do, for doing different things. And Zelazny, even though he is so often cited as a writer of quote-unquote literary science fiction, just is not known outside the field in the way that somebody like Chip Delaney is or certainly not like uh, someone like Ursula Le Guin is. So it, it, it's a very, one of the things that drew me to the project is this issue of literary reputation and the arc of an author's career and what we make of, uh, of the authors after that. I will say that he, he, um, he was very much also, I, I, I hesitate to use the term writer's writer because that implies somebody who is not widely popular or widely read, and that simply was not true with Zelazny. I mean, um, you know, I, as I say in the book, at the height of his fame with the Amber series, you, you know, he had to be kind of careful not, you know, he was being mobbed at science fiction conventions. I mean, he was a very popular writer, but other writers were just knocked out by his work too. And two of his biggest fans among later generations of writers and strongest um, acolytes are uh, Neil Gaiman and George R. R. Martin. And anybody who's read Game of the Game of Thrones books uh, and has read any of the Amber books, can see the connections there. And these are connections that Martin has publicly um, and generously acknowledged. Yeah, that's one thing I really liked about your book, as you said about his rep- it's 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 as much the story of his reputation and his reception over time as it is about you know Zelazny the man, and in that that the beginning of your answer when you talked about his you know this to use a cliche I'm sorry this meteor this meteoric rise to fame so quickly I mean it's funny that he got his second Hugo for for Lord of Light and Lord of Light, you know, seems like, you know, it, it has all the erudition, like you mentioned with his, his, you know, knowledge of, of, you know, um, Hinduism and, and com- com- comparative literature and things like that. It reminded me very much of when you were just talking of the story of Orson Welles, you know, you, it's hard to read this and not have, for some people think, well, Lord of Light was his citizen Kane and he did think mm-hmm. interesting things afterwards, but it was yeah. hard for him to get back mm-hmm. to that, you know? Yeah. Well, I would, uh, that's an interest. I think that there's um, something to be said for, that comparison in the sense of somebody who was uh, was doing significant art at a very young age. I mean, it is scary to think of how young Orson Welles was. It's scary to think of how young uh, Francis Ford Coppola was when he made The Godfather. It's scary to think of how young Kubrick was, uh, you know, all of that. But... Um, the um, I would say the difference there is that Lord of Light is a very interesting book because it, it of course it really you know helps solidify his reputation. But there are to this day people who don't admire that book as much as maybe they like some of Zelazny's other work, or maybe that it just didn't speak to them uh, in quite the same way. It's a very, it's a challenging book. I mean, that's one thing I talk about in my coverage of it is that you got to really, you know, sell out to that book and be willing to be led in, in very specific uh, directions and also be willing to go with the flow of a very specific use of language. Yes. So. Yes. Absolutely. So let's let's talk about him as, as a as a person for a, for a couple of moments. Um, how did that? To what degree, if at any, like how did that rise to to stardom and that quick that quick um you know uh you know rise to fame affect him as a person? Well, um, I I'm pausing here because um, I I think the core thing about Zelazny as a person that I found through my own through my research. And I should say that this is, I've always thought of this book, it is not 
a detailed biography. It is a, sur- a career serve a career um, survey that is strongly biographically based, and um, I think that. Um, and the one thing that, that actually made my job a lot easier and more pleasant was that I could not find one person who had a bad word to say about Roger Zelazny as a person, as an individual. Uh, he, um, from everything I could say, and I actually, uh, I, I maybe save this for, for later in the conversation, but I actually did meet Zelazny as a teenage science fiction Really? Fan. Just tell the yes. story. Oh, oh, okay. Tell well, the story. That's a great... All right. Um, I, um, the first science fiction, I was active in uh, the science fiction fan community in the 1970s, which is the era of mimeograph fanzines and friends through the hard copy mail and the first science fiction convention I ever attended was the 1974 World Science Fiction Convention in Washington, D.C. And I was very young, and I was able to attend. My parents kind of signed off on the trip because my older brother uh, took me. And it was, an, it was a, a doable drive from southeastern North Carolina up to Washington, D.C. And my brother Chip took me because Roger Zelazny was the guest of honor. All right. My older brother was my gateway into reading science fiction. And he just was a Stone Zelazny fan and really just loved the books, just bowed down to Lord of Light, all of that. So I said, Chip. Roger Zelazny is going to be the guest. Oh, okay, fine. You know, we'll go to that. And so I actually did meet him at some, I think, meet the authors thing or guest of honor reception. And I remember I spoke with him and I'd have no memory of what was said. Uh, He was a very affable uh, person. That's all I remember, because uh, I just suck so bad when it comes to things like this. I also met James Baldwin when I was in graduate school, and I don't remember what he said to me either. Uh, but um, the uh, but everybody I talk to retroactively are, are doing research for the book, because there are still plenty of people around who knew Zelazny, who were friends with him, who um, were uh, whom he mentored? People like George R. R. Martin, and every nobody had a bad word to say about him. Um, the most I ever heard was that he, as and I think this may be an answer to your question that I've I've gotten away from here, is that there was a consistent uh, sense of of him being somebody who was a. Uh, just absolutely kind and gracious and affable and, you know, good with, you know, being with people, you know, unlike many a literary figure. Um, uh, Yeah. And so, um, but he kind of kept himself to himself. There was all, you know, sometimes there was a sense of a little bit of, you know, that he's keeping uh, a little bit of distance there. Um, I think that uh, one telling example of that is that he um, he was involved when he was in Baltimore. There was an inform- there was a writers group in a workshop, uh, and it it's too complicated to go into why it was called this. It was called it was called the Guilford Guilford Gaffia. This is a pun on an originary science fiction writers workshop called the Milford Mafia that was in Milford. Uh, Pennsylvania. And that was started by David Knight and Kate Wilhelm back in the 1950s. And this group in Baltimore had a number of writers, well, Joe Haldeman, uh, Jack Dan, George Alec Effinger, people who went on to be very prominent in the field. And Zelazny was kind of the elder statesman of this group, but he never participated in the workshops. He would show up for the party at the end and sort of sit around and visit with people. And they were like, oh, I'm spending Saturday night, you know, talk, hanging out with Roger Zelazny. This is great. Uh, so, you know, and he and he also, um, I, I think, that, so I think that controlling, I think he controlled his own narrative very well. 
and very carefully. And I'm just kind of formulating that now talking to you. I didn't really use that phrase in the book. But I think that he kept his private life private um, in sharp, and I do discuss this in the book, in sharp contrast to people like Chip Delaney or Harlan Ellison. He very seldom did any kind of memoir writing or non-personal nonfiction writing. Um, uh, his, uh, he just, and he lived very quietly. He lived in Baltimore with his wife and his kids. Then they moved to Santa Fe and he spent the rest of his life there. And, um, and the only, he did, uh, get divorced, uh, actually not too long or not, uh, or separated from his wife, not too long before he died and had another relationship at, at the end of his life. But, um, you know, I think that I, I think that he kind of uh, kept it uh, kept it under control, uh, and he was not immune to the kind of anxieties that all writers are a prey to. You know, I mean, what's more, especially once he decided to go full time with it. There is a letter I quote in the book where he's saying, uh, where he says, in so many words, "I'm scared." You know, what if the next book won't come? I mean, I, what am I going to do with this? Uh, but he, um, but the next book came and the one after that and the one after that. So I guess the short version of that very long-winded, digressive um, response is that obviously it affected him. Um, I, I didn't do enough deep research into the sort of... Uh, uh, into his life um, to be able to answer authoritatively. I am quite sure that he enjoyed it. I'm sure that he enjoyed enjoyed being there. He was very much a, he came out of the science fiction community and he was a star within it. And uh, another anecdote that Delaney tells is that uh, he won um Selassie won his first Hugo Award for his first full-length novel, uh, which was serialized in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction uh, and called And Call Me Conrad, and it was published under the title This Immortal, uh, and he won Hugo Award for it. He tied in a tie with Frank Herbert's Dune. All right, that and that tells you something right there. And... Uh, the way Delaney remembers it is that when they were introducing the author guests at the beginning of the convention, everybody got quite a bit of applause. And when they introduced Roger Zelazny, the applause just did not stop. You know, as Delaney put it, it went on and on and on. So he was very much a, uh, again, meteoric rise to fame. It's a cliche in this case. Um, it happens uh, to be true. Um, and he, uh, and, and he maintained, uh, the level of prominence and as far as I can tell that level of personal goodwill, um, all of his life, all of yeah. his career. Well, if, if I may, you know, a little, a little anecdote about that goodwill is that when I was a teenager, you know, I came to Zelazny through Amber and I was so taken by them that I wrote in the, in the mid eighties, I wrote him a letter of questions I had about the first five books and just the, the plot twists and things like that. And I said, I'd also love, this is pre-internet, right? I said, I'd love to have a list of your books. And I sent it care of the science fiction book club, of which I was a member. And I just sent it off. And, and all of a sudden in March of 1985, I received this handwritten letter from him telling me he had this really cool stationery with a picture of the space shuttle on it telling me that the the next amber books will be published soon and that this would be the start of a trilogy of course it turned into another five books and he included a list of all his books that were clearly typed on an electric typewriter line by line and it was so kind it was such a he didn't have to return my letter i was a kid who who had these questions about corwin and, and eric and things like that and it was so cool and i shared that pdf with you and I re your response to me was this seems totally in line with his personality oh absolutely and um i um i am holding a printout of that uh pdf i just did that before we logged on and yeah um one of the uh, well quick before i forget it because i'm old and i forget things um uh there is a study to be done about the impact of the science fiction book club on all of us 
because that was really my source for getting into Zelazny. Uh, um, but um, yeah, in doing the book, I did. I uh, was able to get to um, to have a look at some of Zelazny's papers. He has a significant collection of his papers are at Syracuse University. And there's another collection of his papers at University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And in looking through the correspondence, I was just flabbergasted at how often he would do just what he did for you. Um, that somebody would write him out of nowhere, oh, when's the next book coming out? Or more likely earlier in his career, oh, I, you know, I really uh, enjoyed um, uh, Lord of Light, but I was wondering about this thing, or even how do I get published? You know, what? Where are the keys to the kingdom? What? What's um? How do I do with this? And he would answer them. <laughs> yeah, it's great. He would answer them cool sometimes. Yeah. yeah, sometimes with um, you know, fa- fairly extensively, and. Who has time to do that? You know, I, <laughs> right. I mean, I was just amazed. Uh, you know, he just really seemed to be, uh, you know, there was just a kind of old school graciousness there that, um, uh, you know, and that was one expression of it is that if apparently, and, you know, I don't, I didn't have uh, all of his um, correspondence available, but you know, based on what I saw, you know, if you sent him a letter, he would answer it. And uh, it, it was it was it was quite something. So, yeah, when you sent uh, it does not surprise me at all that he took the time to to uh, do that. Yeah, I, I treasure that letter. So let, let's talk. Let's talk about the Amber books and get into those. So, you know, so Zelazny wrote 10 of these. It's two five book series. And these are these really took off. They got him a tremendous following. The first one, Nine Princes in Amber, is published in 1970. The last of the 10, Prince of Chaos, comes out in 1991. Now, you note in the book that in 1980, Zelazny incorporated himself as the Amber Corporation. So he knew he knew these were the great, great hits. He knew that this was these were doing very very, very well for him. So without spoiling the plot twist and getting into all the intricacies, before we dive into the the issues of these books, can you tell the readers a little bit about what the Amber books are, like, you know, what, what they're about, the, the rough, you know, you know, plot of the, right. of the series? Uh-huh. Yeah, well, uh, I don't think I have to worry about me spoiling plot twists because there were so many of yeah. them. Um, <laughs> I, I, I can't, because it's been a and little good while. Yeah. And good ones, too. It's been a little while since I have... Well, you could tell everyone what is Amber this, and what, what is yeah, Amber. And yeah, so, oh, no, uh, the, sure. Um, uh, the basic conceit of the whole series is that Amber is the kind of perfect world, the original world of which all other worlds are copies, including Earth. And the first book in the series that you mentioned, Nine Princes in Amber, which came out in 1970, um, opens with a guy waking up in a um, hospital with amnesia. And, And one of the things that is very distinctive about the Amber books is that they are all they're narrated in the first person. And this is not, you know, if you've read even one of the Game of Thrones novels, you know, or or anything like Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time or uh, any of the classic uh, fantasy series, uh, well, Lord of the Rings, for that matter. You know, these are books that, well, particularly with something with the, the more modern series is that you've got multiple points of view. Here's the chapter. Not, uh, 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 here's the chapter um, narrated by this guy. Here's the chapter narrated by that. That's from the point of view of that woman, and you, you're bouncing back and forth. But the first five books of the Amber series are narrated by Corwin, and the second five are narrated by another member of the fa- the royal family of Amber, and. The um, and so he wakes up on Shadow Earth and then gradually rediscovers who he is. And the whole impetus of the series 
is Corwin coming to terms with his status in the royal family of Amber of the warfare, often, I mean, literal armies marching warfare among the various siblings within the family trying to control Amber. At the basis of it is the pattern which you have to walk uh, to solidify your status as the, a member of the royal family. And so it's all that, okay? It's all that. Uh, what makes it distinctive is that Cor- Corwin's voice kind of alternates. And this is something that, um, you know, was commented on a lot with Zelazny's work, is that there's a, almost, uh, it is an epic fantasy, and it does have that sort of approach to language in it. Uh, the second novel in the series, The Guns of Avalon, is uh, probably the most overtly Arthurian of the series. Um, but and of course, there's some, um, you know, there's a there's a very uh, Camelot kind of uh, feel to uh, some of this. But um, uh, but there's also a hard boiled aspect to it. I mean, Corwin is quite cynical. You know, Corwin is, um, uh, you know, there is, um, uh, there's a moment in one of the later books where Corwin, it isn't quite as, uh, as um, unnervingly sudden and funny as in the first, as in Raiders of the Lost Ark, remember where the guy uh, pulls out the sword and does all the moves and Indiana Jones just shoots him. Yeah, it isn't quite that abrupt, but it's sort of in the same territory. And the guy that Corwin dispatches is, ah, you don't have any honor. And Corwin's like, honor? I've got places to be, you know, get, uh, get out of my way. So there is that um, aspect to it as well. It, it, it is, um, um, I think that any, it, 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 and it put him, you know, as you said, over the top. It is a very inventive um, series of books it there uh, are people who think that the um, second um, the second five books uh, are maybe not quite up to what he did in the first five. There are those who really admire Nine Princes and Amber and wonder why he dragged it out for for nine more volumes. Um, uh, I think that Nine Princes and Amber in particular is one of the really important works of American fantasy. I, I came to have a whole new appreciation of that book in particular when I was go when I was doing the rereading uh, I needed to do for the series. They're often very funny. Uh, they are uh, very energetic and they and people uh, just I, uh, I what some of the writers I talked to, I wanted to be sure to talk to writers who didn't know Zelazny personally, writers of uh, later generations. So I talked to people like Max Gladstone and Elizabeth Baer and uh, Laird Barron. And uh, I think particularly, and they um, were, um, so you have these not only later generations of readers, but later generations of writers who really did come to to uh, Zelazny through the Amber series. And that's one of the things about his career and about trying to talk to people with about him to people who aren't already familiar with his work, because there is this massive body of the Amber Chronicles. And there are Zelazny fans who adhere to that and really don't, um, aren't maybe that deeply familiar with his other work because as he was writing the Amber Chronicles, he was writing numerous standalone science fiction novels, often very uh, through the 70s and into the 80s, often very um, uh, quite formally uh, innovative and uh, never stopped writing short fiction. In fact, all of the awards in his later career were really for his short fiction um, that he got. His final standalone novel was a sort of um, 
horror fantasy called A Night at the Lonesome October that is narrated by Jack the Ripper's dog. And that's not a spoiler because you're told that within the first five paragraphs of the book. But it is, um, you know, so he was, he just was capable of doing these uh, amazing things. And the Amber, but the Amber series is what, um, you know, kind of uh, made his, uh, made both his fame and certainly his fortune. I mean, he, he, he did very well uh, with those books. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. You talk in your book about how, and I like how you do this, where you talk about how Zelazny found kind of the sweet spot between Tolkien and Raymond Chandler, and that, you know, there's Corey and Corwin, and that, you know, the great thing about those books is you could hand somebody that didn't, that they might say, I don't like science fiction, I don't like fantasy, you could just hand somebody Nine Princes and Amber and say, well, just give this a shot, it's 175 pages long, and you, you, it's like the big sleep, but all of a sudden, it's the, it's the metaphysical big sleep. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I think that, um, uh, in fact, as uh, as you well know, uh, there were people within the fantasy field who kind of had their doubts about the early Amber books. Yeah. Claim, Ursula K. Le Guin said he didn't Ursula take his K. fantasy Le Guin seriously. Was saying right? yeah. He didn't take the materials of fantasy seriously um, enough. And uh, but 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 was always playing around with things. Um, at his early science fiction, if he got pigeonholed before the Amber books, uh, it was because as a writer who adapted myth to science fiction. I mean, Lord of Light, That's Lord know, of Light right? from the yeah. Hindu pantheon, uh, a really wild novel he published uh, in the same era called Creatures of Light and Darkness, is a reimagining of uh, Egyptian. Uh, mythology, and that there's a lot of that going on with his short fiction as well. And uh, there were some people who uh, were saying, well, myth is set. Myth is not science fiction. You know, science fiction is about change. But he was always really just, you know, playing around uh, with it, and he was playing around with the tropes of um, high fantasy and uh, doing, I think, very innovative things with it. It wasn't absolutely unique. Uh, I didn't go into a lot of detail in my book, but there have been other studies of Selazny, uh, Theodore Kurlick, uh, Jane Lenskold, um, and, um, you know, they talk about the influences on Amber. And on the one hand, he, and this is a perfect encapsulation, I think, is the last thing. On the one hand, he was influenced uh, by um, uh, a, um, a, an old pulp novel by the uh, legendary 40s uh, science fiction writer Henry Kuttner. And he was also influenced by Lawrence Durrell's Alexandria Quartet. Uh, in terms of, uh, init- he was initially going to do it from multiple points of view, but just got kind of caught up in uh, in Corwin's point of view, and of course Michael Moorcock, there's and Fritz Leiber, and and all of all of uh, of those guys. But yeah, I mean, and also you mentioned the page count of that. One thing people coming from the Amber series need to realize is that all ten Amber books are probably, in terms of total page count about two to three volumes of any contemporary fantasy series. They are short novels. Uh, they are full-length novels, but they're short novels, which, you know, kind of adds to their appeal, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, and there's so you, much you, dialogue. They're so dialogue-driven. They're very dialogue. So last he had, he never, um, well, his back, his master, he has master's thesis was in compare, his master's, uh, degree was in comp lit, but his specialty was Elizabethan and Jacobian theater. And there is there's often a grand theatricality about him. If you see, if you read 
his work that I, this may be getting a little too technical, but it he doesn't often bury dialogue within narrative paragraphs that the dialogue is very clearly set aside and often like him, you know, going back to Hemingway, uh, um, unattributed. And you really just have to sort of uh, keep up with it and a lot of, uh, a lot of back and forth. Um, yeah. He likes to put people in a room and have them talk. And he and, does. Know, he, he does, does. that very much. Uh, and and he does. Just like the, it's funny you said all the tropes of sci fi, but it also the Amber books are great because they have all those tropes of the private eye novels, right? I mean, you know, the guy with amnesia. I thought of the big sleep just now, like the, the corrupt family. Try, oh, the try, corrupt family. Trying to be, yeah. what does uh, Raymond Chandler say? Down these mean streets, a man Damn. must go who is on himself oh, mean. Yeah. Like that's yeah. what Corbin tries to do. Right. Well, I mean, I think no accident maybe that the worlds that are copies of Amber are referred to as shadow worlds. Yeah. Right. And of course, one of the um, um, things in the novel is that riding through shadow. Yeah. Uh, that, and this is it for the members of the royal family. You can uh, take a sh- get a shortcut to one of the shadow world, but you have to ride through shadow. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to go on a hell ride. And then this is often represented in the books by Selassie kind of uh, letting... Uh, letting it all hang out stylistically and there'll be like a whole page of just purely descriptive writing punctuated by ellipses yes. uh, you know <laughs> and so uh, he was always um um the uh one of the things in any given Zelazny book well in a few of them in particular is you can play spot the 500 word sentence you know, spot the two pa- spot the two page paragraph. He he was not uh he, he always um almost always let you know let himself from time to time go on these kind of have these lyrical outbursts. Yeah, and it's funny in, in because they're, they're in the middle of these novels, which are so perfectly and tightly plotted. Where, where you know, the, the fun of them is keeping – it's like reading John le Carre, where the fun is trying to keep up with who knows what at what time. And I, I was really doing that for this other guy and you got it all wrong. And now – so that's what's so fun is that it goes from that kind of like le Carre plot to all of a sudden you're reading Leaves of Grass or something. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, it's funny that um, one of the characters in one of his later standalone novels, Roadmark, is a sentient copy of Leaves of Grass. Right. So <laughs> – Right. I think I'm, I think I'm remembering that correctly. That's right. That's so, right. Um, yes. Yeah, so so uh, name was um, uh, very. Well, he was he was a a very even by the standards. You know, science fiction writers do tend to often be kind of autodidacts, and they read a lot. Uh, they have a lot of uh, widely uh, dispersed knowledge. And uh, Zelazny, even by the standards of the field, just read uh, of, of voluminously and retained a lot of what he read. I mean, one of my favorite of his standalone novel uh, books, really, is uh, a book he published in the 1970s called My Name is Legion. That is three novellas about a private detective. So they're science fiction crime novels. And uh, they... Um, um, and they are are good examples of just what you were talking about that they can be very lyrical but they're still uh you know this guy's trying to solve a mystery and uh this and the nameless narrator uh who's um uh, lost uh, in the data uh, lost uh, who who has kind of what today we would call uh he's gone off the grid but he still manages to have his um you know, do jobs for a detective agency. Well, if we could, before we veer into the end of his career, I just want to push the Amber stuff a little more because I think I, I think it's interesting is that, so you mentioned writing through shadows. So for people not familiar with the Amber books, you said before, you know, Amber is the one perfect city, the one perfect world. But if you're a prince, if you're a member of the royal family, you can manipulate these kind of parallel realities and you can go into them. And so I want to, you know, Roger Zelazny has a hit, he, he has a letter in your book, you quote him and he says, um, there's something a bit lighter than my usual fare, but I think he's being a little modest there. I think the Amber books have a lot of big philosophical unsolved, that is, but they're, they're really interesting issues, right? So let's talk about that. The, the big ideas of the Amber books, right? 
why, if you are a prince of amber or a member of the royal family, you can go live in a shadow wherever you want. You can go manipulate space-time so that you are Elvis or you're a, a writer or you are um, you know, you're Jimmy Buffett hanging out on the beach or you're you know, Napoleon. You could do whatever you want. So why are all these people fighting to control amber, the real city? Well, I think the short answer is it's good to be the king. Uh, you know, I think that, um, uh, or at least it is for them. Uh, and I think that one of the big issues that Zelazny deals with in the series, and particularly in the first five, well, actually in all of them, is uh, exactly that. I mean, why bother? You know, I mean, why do this? And there, at one point, and I don't remember which book it's in, Corwin is reminiscing about when he was on Shadow Earth in like Paris in the twenties yeah, or something it was a great like time, that. Yeah. And it was like, that was great. You know, why you know, I, I wish I could go back to that. But um but part of it, it one there are things in the the concepts uh, within the series, um, and kind of um almost um floating on I won't say under the surface, but uh, dealt with in very specific ways. I mean, if we're talking about shadow earths, we're talking about alternate worlds. We're talking about parallel worlds. We're talking about multiple levels of reality, right? So uh, that's all very much there. Uh, but we're but they're also talking about power. You're talking about power and the uses of power and the responsibilities of power. And uh, one of the, I'm trying to think of a non, now I am trying to think of a non-spoiler way to do this, but that Corwin along the way comes to some realizations that have him interrogating just what you were talking about. Do I want the throne of Amber? What is it worth? You know, what is it worth to me? Do I really want to do this? And part of it is uh, motivated by, um, it, it goes, I mean, in Nine Princes and Amber, you're going from curiosity, a, a profound existential curiosity. Who am I? No, really, who am I? I have no idea who I am. And then once he discover is led into the um, the Amber world, is, is discovering that world, discovering how to use it, discovering his family, trying to work out how he feels about them, and then, based on some things that happened in that first book, trying to take revenge on members of his family. And then, as those first five books unfold, um, you discover this goes to the sort of uh, plot intricacies you were talking about that, well, wasn't quite what it seemed you know there was more going on than maybe you initially realized but i would say you know it's a part of it is just power a part of it is uh, a family uh i mean what is the appeal of game of thrones it's those families you know it's um it's not um and i i don't in terms of the actual fantasy world of Game of Thrones, uh, at least being, and I'm not, uh, I should say immediately, uh, I did not watch much of the HBO series. I read the first book and it's a terrific read. You know, you see what it's coming from. And I'm also old enough to remember when George Martin was writing stories for science fiction magazines for Nicola Words, so God bless him. And the, um, but it's the families. It is the dynamics among the individuals. And uh, I think that Cor that Corwin's desire to try to figure that out and to try to come to terms with it. Well, this is something I've got to, to uh, this is something I've got to get a handle on. And, and I think as you were implying, I mean, who wouldn't like to take a jaunt between worlds like that? Who wouldn't like, and one thing we haven't mentioned is the trumps, is the cards, this uh, tarot, essentially tarot-ish deck 
that has the images of all of the members of the royal family of Amber, and that is the device by which they transport themselves. Those are their uh, iPhones, yeah. <laughs> yeah, those are their iPhones. That's the, um, that's the you know, beam me up uh, uh, device. And, you know, who wouldn't, who wouldn't enjoy, enjoy doing that? And it's got all those things, like you said about you know Amber's like the you know the the one to have the power of controlling Amber because Amber's the place of order, right? And the enemies of Amber all come from this place called the Courts of Chaos. And it's got I love what you said about families because in one of the early books, I think it's the first one, is um, Corwin curses his brother Eric for something he did to him or he thinks he did to him, and then it starts this thing called the Black Road, which kind of remember the Black Road comes into Amber and all of these demons come on it and things like that. And it, it, it's you know it's metaphorically about how once there's a rift in a family, it's very very hard you know to get that to turn that Black Road around. Right, right, and of course in the uh, second series, the second five books. It's again all about trying to deal with family and come to terms uh, with power. And um, in the second five books in particular, uh, to keep yourself from being run over by powerful people within your own family who want you to position yourself in a certain way and pushing back against that. Um, that that's even more strong uh strongly because um uh that um but but all of the um um all of that the family dynamic and the interplay and also again with this uh, um, amazingly uh enduring voice i won't even say consistent because as i discuss in the book, you know, there are sometimes you can pick up an Amber book and on one page it may sort of read like this and another page it may sort of read like that. And that's, you know, deliberately done. And also mirrors the fact that, um, you know, we're talking about two uh, different um, uh, worlds. And that goes back to even Lord of Light because the central uh, figure in Lord of Light is, on the one hand, he's the Lord of Light, but he's also Sam. Right. And so this kind of continuing modulation between if I wanted to get really pretentious, I would call it the sacred or the profane. But, you know, we don't want to get pretentious. So um, so I won't do that. But, yeah, there and in case for people, I I worry that um, anybody listening to this who is not immediately familiar was not already seduced by the Chronicles of Amber is going to go, what? But as you can tell, listeners, there is a lot going on. And I would also urge people who might be interested in exploring Celestine's work that there's a lot of other work, too. There's all those um, early stories. Um, There's a a book that was uh, published by a a small press a couple of years ago called uh, The Magic, that was essentially curated by Samuel R. Delaney, and it really gets all of Zelazny's early major stories um, in one place and other uh, novels. Um, uh, the the, um, um, the this immortal um, the uh, the second novel, The Dream Master, is really really interesting. It's an expansion of his novella He Who Shapes that won his first Nebula Award. Um, there are a number of interesting books uh, through the 70s. In the 80s, he wrote a book called Eye of Cat that deals with uh, Native American uh, concerns. And um, the uh, and if anybody has heard me say Native American and remembers it a little while ago, I said Hindu pantheon and also remembers and has been paying attention that Zelazny was this white guy from Euclid, Ohio, and you're starting to think cultural appropriation. Well, yeah, question mark. I mean, it is, uh, it, that's one of the interesting things uh, about Zelazny's work uh, is that he plays fast and loose with Hindu and uh, Egyptian mythology. Uh, Eye of Cat was pretty meticulously researched and as at least in my eyes, uh, a very um, uh, respectful uh, presentation uh, of that particular 
material. Someone was said of uh, Lord of Light that, you know, these days we might call it a cultural appropriation. In 1967, we might call it uh, earning points for even being aware that there are other religions in the world. And that was one of his motivating factors with that novel was that nobody's ever really done anything with uh, the Hindu uh, pantheon, uh, with, with that uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, to that extent, uh, within science fiction. So, yeah. Well, let's look a lot at what's going on. Yeah, there is. Let, let's talk about toward the end of his career. Let, let's finish up by talking about that. So, um, you know, you talk about his his Dilvish stories and his novel, The Changing Land, towards the end of your book. In 1982, this collection came out called Dilvish the Damned. Um, and you quote a letter from Zelazny in which he said, here's what he said, quote, to tell the truth, I invented that series because I find that sort of thing very easy to write. And I thought it would be useful to have such a thing for those occasions when I might need a story in a hurry, end quote. So you say people like Norman Spinrad and Neil Gaiman, they saw this output as a betrayal of his early promise or at best going through the motions. So, you know, let's let's talk kind of about the end of his career. And, and you know, do you see any quote unquote betrayal of his early promise or do you see any sense of him going through the motions or, you know, because when I read your book, part of me thought, well, sure, like he knew, like I'm very good at this and that's fine. And I'll, I'll take my, I'll take stylistic chances, but I also know what people like. And, you know, if people like this, there's no, no harm, mm-hmm. no foul. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, in retrospect, maybe betrayal was um, uh, a loaded word uh, for me uh, to use there. But if you, um, well, I'll put it this way. Um, there were, um, one thing I quote in the book is that a review, if I can't remember, I think it was the fourth Amber book. It was the third or the fourth Amber book. No, it was the fourth. And uh, by Alexei and Corey Panshin, very well-known critics um, of the time and uh, also science fiction writers. And they were of the school that, you know, they didn't have much truck with the Amber books. They really didn't care uh, for them all that much. And then, uh, but they really liked uh, this fourth book because they thought he had regained his moral compass or something along those lines. And I'm probably misremembering and mis misparaphrasing there. But at one point in the review, which was published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, they suddenly write, Zelazny is back. Hooray, hooray. And I think that's very telling as to the level of just emotional investment, never mind artistic investment, that Zelazny's readers and other writers had in him. Uh, and it is, um, and when you think that the writer is not living up to these works that so rocked your world, then maybe you do feel uh, a certain sense of betrayal. Um, I, I want, I do say, you mentioned Neil, Neil, Neil Gaiman, and uh, I think Gaiman, the quote from Gaiman I found illuminating was that he felt that it's somewhere in the 1980s that Zelazny had, and this is an exact quote, lost his joy, lost his joy, and was doing things that were repetitive um, and kind of farming out things. Zelazny did a lot of collaborative work in his later career. Um, but, um, and so, uh, I can, if you hear that quote about the Dilbert series, you think, what, what a hack, you know, why, why, why do that? But a couple of things about that. It's not like he spent the rest of his career writing, Dilvish the Damned, which are very entertaining stories. I mean, they're very, um, they're certainly worth reading if if you like, if you want a, dare I say, more conventional approach to sword sorcery, kind of heroic fantasy. Um, you know, they're books to look at. Um, because at the same time he was doing those, he was writing um, book, some of his books in the 70s. He wrote a very funny novel called Doorways in the Sand that was just this perfectly structured science fiction romp. He wrote a book called Bridge of Ashes that was was incredibly um, interesting and innovative. Um, He he did a collaborative novel with Philip K. Dick 
In fact, I spent a whole other podcast talking with a bunch of Philip K. Dick people about that novel, Deus Irae. Um, he wrote a novella in the 1980s called uh, 24 Views of Mount Fuji by Hokusai that won him his final Hugo Award. And um, well, and so he, he was... Um, who was always, uh, you know, doing that sort of thing. And the book I mentioned earlier, which was kind of the nicest surprise for me in doing the reading and rereading for this book, because I had not been deeply familiar with The Night of the Lonesome October from my youthful reading. And I thought, well, this is just great. This is fabulous. This is his elasticity so clearly having fun and be, having not only fun, but having really smart fun. Um, so, um, I think that, um, so uh, that there's all of that going on, uh, at the same time. And also, um, when you say that, uh, Zelazny was writing the Dilber stories because readers enjoyed them, um, I think that Zelazny was also writing, uh, certain kinds of stories because he enjoyed them. Uh, this is a point that Jane Lindskull makes, uh, is that when people talk about all, all the sword sorcery stuff, the Dilvish stories and the uh, other things he did, um, that uh, her assertion is that he wrote that stuff because he liked to read it, that he was an enthusiast for that kind of high fantasy uh, fiction. Again, going back to Michael Moorcock and Fritz Leiber and all the way back to Tolkien, Robert E. Howard, and, you know, all, all of those guys. So, um, you know, he wrote, um, he wanted the tension between his, between his um, just deep knowledge of the arts of fiction and literature and his, but his un always this joy, as Gaiman said, in, uh, in all of it as well, and his comfort with uh, the, the um, approaches of genre fiction, with the materials of genre fiction, and, and also, of course, the idea of his being a commercial uh, writer and so, and a man in the middle, in the um, you know middle third, late middle third of the 20th century, uh, an American man who had a family to support. And, um, you know, you know th th that was certainly a figure. And if there is a quote that I heard along the way that I didn't include in the book because I really was not able to source it or document it, but the, that allegedly that Zelazny said of uh, the story 24 Views of Mount Fuji, that that was a really good story. I'm very proud of it. It won me an award, and the last Amber book put a wing on my house. And um, you know, there is um, well, as I say, the afterward to the book that one maybe cannot help wishing, the, you know, longing for a world where something like that novella would be as remunerative as um, the next Amber book or the, or um, the, um, or uh, any of the other uh, things he was doing later in his career. Well, you describe his, his work as just in your answer, you gave a great reason of why people should be drawn to his work. And I hope people will after hearing this, but I love the phrase you just used called smart fun. And I think that's, that's a great way to describe the, the work of Rogers Lasney and certainly a way to describe your book. So, you well, know, Brett, it's been great uh, talking to you today. And well, great. Yeah. I really appreciate it. I'm very glad to, uh, to do that. If I could add one, uh, footnote, uh, note and, um, that, um, uh, I always want to claim uh, that for me, uh, the the starting point for Roger Zelazny was when I read his breakthrough story, Arose for Ecclesiastes. And um, you cannot read a story like this is a story about a poet on Mars. And it is narrated by this arrogant young poet on Mars. And it you cannot read a story like that as a very young reader with sort of nascent literary ambitions and not have it 
impact you. Uh, and I think that I think that people come, and this is not unique to Zelazny, but some people, but you know, I think that the people, those of us who were impacted by Zelazny, were impacted very strongly. Um, I would hope that uh, people would uh, take, um, you know, people who maybe know and at least know in passing. Oh, I know who Samuel R. Delaney is. I know who Ursula Le Guin is. I know actually a writer I should have mentioned earlier with the new wave folk uh, i know sort of know who thomas m dish was uh but um you know that's last news work is uh is well worth considering i wouldn't have spent um so so many uh so much of uh, my recent life you know getting this done um uh, yeah it certainly is and it, it was great to go th- to walk through his career with you as a guide, you know, offering more smart fun. And it's certainly, um, if, if, if people have maybe read one or two things by Zelazny, or I've always wanted to read Lord of Light. This is a great, great book to motivate people to go back to his work because it certainly did for me. So thanks for being on the show. And I encourage all our listeners to get a copy of the book, Roger Zelazny. It's in paperback from the University of Illinois Press. It's a great read about a great writer. Thank you so much, Brett, for being on the show. Oh, thank you, Dan. I really enjoyed it.